I was inspired to say something tonight um, about compassion. I wanted to do it both because we're all leaving tomorrow and going back into our lives, and I think um, one of the talks that seems appropriate for the last night of a retreat, uh, because people always ask this question about how shall I take this practice into life, and it has two levels at least, that question. Because on, on one level, people are often interested, and we will talk tomorrow morning about how it's good to build in times of quiet and times of intensive practice every day when you've gone home. But really, I think of this practice as a life practice of paying attention and responding wisely. When people ask me what my practice is, uh, I tell them, my practice is trying to cultivate alertness and wisdom and the ability to respond with kindness and compassion. Towards that end, there are lots of things that I do that help me do that. I, I sit, I spend some time in silence, I have a prayer practice, I have a study practice, I have a work practice, I have a parenting family practice, I have a lot of practices, but those are sub-practices. I might even think of them as techniques or uh, skillful means for the practice that I have, which is trying to stay awake and respond with compassion. I uh, had a telephone call from a uh, uh, a magazine, actually, it was the Utney Reader, and uh, the, um, you, you might have seen the article there. About uh, six months ago, um, just six months ago, I think, full moon in April, um, and uh, we were down in the desert. Guy was there as well. I remember that. We were teaching down there. And I had a, a phone call from... Um, uh, a reporter for the Utney Reader who said, we're doing an article on uh, uh, mixing and uh, matching religions. Lots of people are mixing and matching religions. What do you think about that? Do you think it's good or bad? So I, probably a little bit excessively coy, um, said, are people doing that? Um, um, so he said, yes, really. He said, people are making salad religions, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whatever they like. They take some from here, some from there. Do you think it's good or bad? So I said, well, I don't know if it's good or bad. I said, you know, if people are doing that, what I'd like to think is that it's a good sign, that it's a sign that people are waking up to the fact that their spiritual life needs to be nourished. That's an important wake up and they're looking for a way to do it. He said, well, people are doing it all by themselves. I said, well, you know, if they are, uh, it's an, probably an American thing. Eric Erickson said, you know, the hallmark of Americans is that they're pioneers. They're all descendants of pioneers and cowboys and people who went out on the range, or even those of us who didn't have parents who went out on the range, I have grandparents who left Europe and went out as pioneers on their own. So everybody, he said, I said, everybody's a pioneer here and everybody has to find their own way. So it's very American. He said, but is it good or bad? And uh, I said, well, I could see that it might have a pitfall. Um, he said, well, what would, would the pitfall be of having a, completely do-it-yourself practice by yourself. I said, uh, meantime, my voice, as I'm talking to him on the telephone, it's very modulated. I'm a modulated person anyway. So I said, well, I think it has two pitfalls. One is that if you're in a practice all by yourself, there's never anybody who could uh, give you encouragement and tell you that's great. And On the other hand, there's nobody who... Uh, could tell you, on the other hand, that you're deluding yourself and that whatever you're doing, nothing is happening. <laughs> so he said, 
what's supposed to happen? I said, what's supposed to happen? And all of a sudden, I got all, I said, what's supposed to happen is that as we see each of us clearly the truth of our experience and we discover the possibility of seeing clearly and responding in a wise way, which leads to our own happiness and the happiness of the people that we're involved in, and as we see in the ways that that we don't respond with clarity, not only do we mess, make a mess of things, but we cause extra suffering, we cause suffering for the people around us, we create <laughs> suffering in the whole world, and that the world is in a terrible shape, and look what's happening in this sphere and in that sphere and in the other sphere. And if the whole world doesn't wake up to what we're doing, the point of spiritual practice is transformation of the heart so that we transform ourselves, we transform the people around us, and we transform the whole world. And then there was a long pause. <laughs> and he said, very good. So what I needed to talk about tonight is how does that transformation take place? And what are the components of uh, the transformed heart? There's a particular um, scheme in schema, I think is a better word, in Buddhism, for the ten qualities of the completely awakened heart. And it's broken down into ten different qualities. They're wonderful qualities. They're qualities that uh, you'll recognize. They're uh, qualities that everybody knows is a possibility for them. What the notion is be in in this schema is that we start as adults with some some capacity for generosity and i hope some capacity for morality and renunciation some amount of wisdom some energy to devote to our lives some patience to deal with life because it's always challenging some commitment to truthfulness, some level of determination, which is what we're going to need to get anywhere at all, (coughs) some capacity or inclination towards loving-kindness and forgiveness, because we're always challenged, and some interest in and maybe some beginning capacity for equanimity which is really another way, I think, for saying peace of mind and peace of heart. I used to make a mistake about equanimity. I thought it was more like tranquility, which has a kind of composed and unchanging nature. And I think of equanimity as that great spaciousness of mind and heart that allows for tremendous passion in a context of balance and in a framework of being able to see clearly with wise understanding. So there's a particular um, understanding about the development of these particular capacities of mind. And as I was thinking about them again this afternoon, I was thinking about the way that I could talk about each of them as a practice. We practice renunciation in order for renunciation to become a spontaneous capacity of the mind. Or we practice morality in order for morality to become spontaneous. Or we practice truthfulness in order for honesty to become spontaneous. Each of these practices, I think, functions, is, is, is a manifestation of each other. One of the things that I've been thinking about with all these wonderful charts, Buddhism is full of wonderful charts, the Eightfold Path, or the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, these ten paramitas, which means fully finished capacities. And I think that we could take any one of the factors in any one of those understandings and look at it closely and it would have all the other parts of it hidden in it. 
I think that's true. When I look at this list of uh, capacities of the mind, which are start from generosity and then go through all of them, I think of them as generosity is a gift. I think of all of them as being a certain kind of a gift. Like the morality is the gift of safety for everyone around us and ourselves. Renunciation is a gift of making things easy for ourselves. Once we've renounced certain things, we're no longer tempted by them. So we've given ourselves the gift of uncomplication. As I thought about this list today, because I've done it several times, thinking of each of these through the lens of generosity, I was thinking about uh, seeing them through the lens of compassion as well. I think I could do that as well. We'll see as it works out, if that really turns out to be true. Generosity, for instance, is uh, usually um, the first on the list. And uh, the proximal cause, the lists always say, here's the, uh, the capacity and here's the uh, proximal cause. Proximal cause of generosity is uh, seeing that you can part with something, that you don't need it, and you can let go of it. I had an interesting time this afternoon. I was thinking of what story I wanted to tell about that. And I thought of a story I've told many times. And then I not only told it, I wrote it down, so it's in print. And then I thought about this afternoon, and I thought, that story is wrong. And I had to write an interpretation on the story. Let's see how it comes out. I'll see if it's still wrong. I uh, was, was thinking about things that we need and discovering that we don't need something. I was leaving my house probably 20 years ago with my friend Mary Neal, who's uh, been a very long time friend of mine and spiritual buddy. And we were going to teach a class together. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, we were having lunch at my house. And all of a sudden, we noticed it was late. And so we stood up from the table. I put on my sweater. We picked up our books in a hurry, and we went out the door in a hurry. And I looked down at this hastily put together pile of books, and I said, wait, I don't think I have everything I need. And Mary, in her inimitable way, said, sweetheart, you're never going to have everything you need. (laughs) Now, that, for years, was a tremendously sustaining mantra for me. I could go to teach a class with that, I could go do a new project with that, because I'd always be thinking, I didn't prepare enough, I didn't do enough, I didn't bring enough, maybe it won't be good enough, I need something. And I would hear Mary saying, sweetheart, you're never going to have everything you need. Thinking about this afternoon, I was thinking, actually, you always have everything you need. So I'm not sure about that. We only think we need something else. Whatever we have, we do with that. I might have to stop telling that story and tell instead how moved I was uh, about that same time to um, have as some teachers uh, uh, a group of uh, Burmese monks. Do you remember on the first night here, Guy was telling the story about um, uh, Burmese monks with a fan that said monks on tour. Uh, On that very same tour, those uh, five or six monks uh, did a five-day, uh, if they were really a rock group on tour, you'd say gig, but I don't think you say that about monks. But uh, They spent five days teaching in Yucca Valley, where I was a student. And on the last day, we were invited to come and watch them leave their cottage where they stayed. And the Volkswagen bus that was taking them on the continuation of their tour was parked outside the cottage. So we all stood there and did a polite salute bow to them. And all of these monks came out. 
And uh, each one of them was just in his robes and sandal and carrying a begging bowl. And uh, on the top of the Volkswagen bus were two suitcases. And six or seven monks got into this Volkswagen. And you realize that that's all their worldly goods. And I thought about it at the time, about stuff that we most of us have. I was very touched by how little stuff you could get on with in the world. It left a picture in my mind. I actually think of generosity as being let going not only of stuff, but of grudges and of views and of ideas that we are committed to that might not be right when someone points out something else. There's a kind of openness of heart for generosity. So I think the gift of generosity, when we give someone the something they're happy, when they, we give them the gift of the open mind that isn't attached to our point of view, we give them a gift as well. We give them the gift possibly of intimacy, or being able to really connect with them, which is really the gift of compassion to really be present for somebody. I think morality is also a gift of compassion. It's usually the second on that list of paramis. It's usually uh, recommended that its function is composing. Remember, we talked about the fact that one of the elements of taking on a um, precepts and a dedication to precepts is it composes the mind and heart. You don't have to have regret or remorse. Just say, I'm going to behave in this way. I think more than that, really it brings happiness. And the happiness, really, of knowing that you're not causing any hurt to anybody. When my grandfather died, he was 98 years old, not long in clear of mind until the very end. He said, um, I'm very happy in my life. Uh, I never caused anybody any harm. Um, one of the stories that I tell about him, he's a you know, person didn't leave a lot of fame, could never read or write, hadn't gone to school, worked in this country, he was born in Europe, but he worked in this country as a manual laborer all of his working life. Worked in a gasoline station in the 1940s, pumping gas. And uh, uh, he'd come home and uh, his hands were all greasy. I remember I used to watch him wash his hands for very long periods of time. He worked in a gasoline station for a very long time, perhaps a decade, and never learned to drive a car. And uh, I asked him how come he hadn't learned to drive a car. And he said, uh, when I came to this country, which was 1908, and now we're having this discussion in the late, mid-1940s, so when I came to this country, I uh, tried to learn how to ride a bicycle. My friend tried to teach me how to ride a bicycle. And I wasn't so steady. And I bumped into somebody in the street. I bumped into a woman, and she was carrying a bag of groceries. And they fell down on the floor, and all of the oranges rolled all over the street. And I felt so terrible about doing it that I decided I never wanted to arrive at, drive anything again because I might bump into somebody. I said, but that was only one time that happened. He said, that doesn't matter. You do it one time, and you see that you could cause hurt to somebody, and then you don't do it again. So that stayed with me as a story all of my life. You know, and we bump people, and we get on our bike, and maybe even in our car again. And that's okay. 
But I love thinking about the fact that the sense of a blameless heart was so important to him. In uh, Buddhist writings, it's called the bliss of blamelessness. Sounds, really, it's a nice term, the bliss of blamelessness. The proximal cause for morality in classic texts is moral shame and moral dread. Those sound like terrible things, but actually, I like them very much as <laughs> ideas. They, they carry two ideas. One is that recognizing, one is recognizing that every single thing we do, every action, has a consequence. And one possible consequence might be causing pain or harm. That's only one consequence. You might cause good or um, relieve suffering. So it doesn't mean not to act. But to have in mind that every single thing we do might cause harm. And the other part of it is to recognize that every single thing we do has consequences across time and across space, forever and ever, that there are no inconsequential things. Everything matters. Sometimes I say to people, do you remember some hurt that someone did you 10 years ago? Yeah, do you? Hurtful things somebody said 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Anybody here remember something hurtful someone did to them 30 years ago? Yeah? 40 years ago? 50 years ago? See, you have to be... I figured it out that the age, you can ask, is x plus 5. As we remember about from 4 or 5 years old, we really do remember. I sometimes ask people to remember if they can remember a hurt that they did to somebody 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I had a friend who died in an untimely, all, all death, maybe it's untimely, but she was young. She was in her 40s. And um, it was a tremendous lesson for me because she had some period of time between her diagnosis and her valiant fight against her disease and the end of her life. And she systematically phoned everybody and met with everyone and repaired every possible breach of unfinished business that she had ever had with anyone. She actually finished all her repairs before she died. I visited her the day before she died, and she actually was lying in bed reading the San Francisco Chronicle. And uh, she said, I feel like a person who's giving a dinner party. And she said, sometimes you give a dinner party, and um, you, uh, you're not ready, and the people arrive. Sometimes you're rushing and rushing, and you finish the cooking just as they're at the door. Sometimes you finish all the preparations, set the table, light the candles, and they're not there yet. You sit down and read the Chronicle. So I finished So uh, reading the Chronicle. But what it meant to me is that I, what I really got from that is you don't know how much time you're going to have. And so we have to do sort of tidying up as we go along. And uh, the Buddha's teaching on that is that before any action, you should think to yourself, is this action for the benefit of myself and for all beings? And in the middle of every action, you should think to yourself, is what I'm about to do for the benefit of myself and for all beings? And after every action, you should think to yourself, is what I just did for the benefit of. And before, if it's not, you could not do it. In the middle, if it's not, you could stop. Do you ever start to say something, and in the middle of you saying it, you realize, whoops, 
This is not what I meant to be doing. It's wonderful to be able to stop and say, excuse me, I'd like to just back up 30 seconds and start again, right from there. Not for John. You know. And then afterwards to say, is if it wasn't what we wanted to do, what's for the benefit of all beings, to fix it up right afterwards. I think when we don't, it hangs extremely heavy on the heart. I think it's compassionate to ourselves to be tidy, as well as to the people we may have hurt. I heard a very compelling story just um, a couple of months ago. A man I met told me about his cousin, who had just told him this story. The cousin is a um, dermatologist in Indiana. And he said it was a Sunday morning. He was out driving on a country road. And way up ahead of him, he saw a uh, big semi-truck and two cars right behind it. And uh, he was way down and up another hill, so some distance away. But in his line of vision, Something happened, I guess the truck skidded, and the car right behind it drove into it. And the car behind it skidded off the road. And he arrived on the scene knowing that it was a catastrophic um, accident. And he's a dermatologist. He's not a trauma doctor or an emergency doctor, but nevertheless, he's a doctor, so he stopped. And uh, the truck driver was very hurt, and the person in the car that had just smashed into him had died. And the woman in the car behind was fine, and she was the wife of the person in the car. And his decision was to uh, look after the trauma wounds of the person in the truck, because it was clear to him that the man in the car had died. The wife of that man urged him to do CPR on her husband, frantic about it. He made the kind of battlefield triage decision that's so difficult to make, but he took care of the person that he thought he could help. And uh, on the way down and up, he called on his car phone, and very soon emergency equipment came and paramedics and ambulances and They took the truck driver to the hospital, and he went to work. And he said as the day went by, he began to be assailed by doubts. Maybe I should have done CPR on that person in the car. Maybe I could have revived him until the paramedics came. Maybe I made a mistake. As the day went by, he developed a headache, and it got more and more and more severe. Finally, his headache was so severe, he decided he'd better go home from work. He got in the elevator to go home, and he stepped into the elevator along with the um, pathologist of that hospital. He happened to get into the elevator with him. And the door closed, and they were riding down. And the pathologist said, this has been a really hard day. He said, the first thing this morning, they brought in a man who had just been killed in an accident on the highway, smashed into a semi-truck. And it was really, must have been a terrible accident because he had such terrible internal injury, he must have absolutely been dead on impact. He said by the time the elevator had come down, his headache had gone away. I thought so much about that story, about the way in which when we even think we may have made a mistake, even that we tried our hardest to make the best decision, it's a terrible pain in the heart, terrible pain in the body. So to make a decision to try to live with complete morality and complete Carefulness for the well-being of others is an act of great compassion for ourselves. We do ourselves, a, really, we, we make ourselves an unburdened heart. 
it has an end on it. Sometimes we really do hurt people, you know. I think it's a very compassionate um, practice for us to be able to ask for forgiveness. It's a great act of compassion on ourselves to be able to say, I'm genuinely contrite, please forgive me. Even though the proximal cause of uh, morality is given in the standard text as uh, moral shame and moral dread, I look at all this list of ten proximal causes and I think I could just throw them all up in the air like a deck of ten cards and catch anyone with any one of these qualities or capacities of mine and it would work. I would just be prepared to say that looking around at suffering, seeing clearly the truth of suffering, is the cause for morality. And see how much pain there is in the world just by the fact that things are fragile and subject to decay and loss. When we see that, we become heartbroken and therefore impeccable. I think, about, I think I could tell my whole dharma in seven words. When we see clearly, we behave impeccably. I believe that. Sometimes people ask, since it seems sometimes that people who seem to have some measure of understanding, insight, do sometimes some quite hurtful things. And say, well, I thought that person had so much wisdom. And my sense, after a lot of thinking about it, is not enough wisdom, not enough clarity. Insight, but not enough insight. And definitely not enough insight into the ubiquitous nature of suffering in the world, because otherwise we would be impeccable. So morality is really a compassionate act in response to the suffering of the world. Being honest. Truthfulness is really a compassionate act. It levels the playing field for everybody, uncomplicates the confusion of the world. When we're really honest, Sometimes it's peculiar, complete honesty. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was in Aspen a couple of years ago in the summertime um, with my husband. We have a friend who lives there. My friend Elaine lives there in the summertime as well. So we visited with her. and um, My friend Stephen Mitchell was there with his wife Vicki also staying in Aspen at the same time, also a friend of Elaine. And uh, Elaine is a friend of the uh, monks at Snowmass Abbey, which is right outside of Aspen, and um, goes there on the one morning a week that um, they let outsiders come to their morning uh, service. And um, I, she said, would you like to go with me? She asked the four of us if we'd like to go the next day to Snowmass Abbey. And I, I, I did want to go. I wanted to go in general. And I wanted to go in specific because I knew one of the monks at uh, Snowmass Abbey who's um, done a great deal of vipassana practice. Actually, he sat the first three-month retreat in Barry 20 years ago. So, um, a man in his middle 70s now. Um, so I, I did want to go, and she said, okay, we'll call her. I'll call up, and she called up and made the arrangements. And the following morning, uh, we met at the prearranged meeting place. And for complicated reasons, my friend Stephen Mitchell and his wife Vicki could not go. So my husband and I went. And Elaine went. The three of us went out to Snowmass Abbey, and we went in and we went into the ante room 
to be greeted and escorted into the uh, the sanctuary. And um, the very monk who came out, who was to be the celebrant that morning, uh, that liturgy, uh, was the very one that I knew. Really happy about that. I didn't know if he recognized me. I recognized him from having seen him on retreat. Um, and my friend Elaine turned to him and said, Father, I'd like you to meet my friend Sylvia Porsti. And we shook hands and he said, how do you do? I'm glad to meet you. And he turned to my husband and he said, and you must be Stephen Mitchell. And my husband said, no, I'm Samuel Porstein. He said, oh, I'm so disappointed. I was so looking forward to meeting Stephen Mitchell. So I thought, oh, you know, it, ordinarily, I mean, we think, well, maybe that's not so, you know. Actually, it was quite wonderful. In the moment, I thought, oh, maybe my husband feels badly, or maybe he'll now feel badly that he blurted that out. Clearly, he didn't feel bad that he blurted it out. It was the truth. He was very disappointed. He would have rather seen Stephen Mitchell. <laughs> Stephen is more famous, and his poetry is all over Snowmass Abbey. I, you know. So we then went into that morning liturgy. And it was wonderful to be part of it because I saw that the same absence of guile that was part of his interaction with us was part of his interaction with God. And it was marvelous to be there. That without guile creates for everybody present a sense of intimacy that's extraordinary. When we are really without guile, which is what honest is. Kind intended, certainly, but honest. There's a different feeling. It's really a feeling of being really present to the other person, which really means empathic with them, which really has a great deal to do with compassionately caring for the other person, not hiding behind any veils and any disguises, any pretense. I learned a lot from it. We won't be able to do all ten for sure. I'm deciding which ones I think I want to tell you about. Maybe I'll tell you something about renunciation. I like that one. Uh, because the the uh, function it has on the in terms of uh, uh, what it does to you is it develops restraint. I actually think we have all become renunciates this week, and the practice of mindfulness and the dedication to mindfulness is the practice of renouncing the habits of the mind of greed and hatred and delusion that create confusion and problems and suffering. When I first began to do this practice, I was so inspired by what I saw clearly as the possibility of it. I began to have, and I was a little bit dismayed by it, fantasies, dreams about going to Asia and shaving my head, becoming a nun, it's not clearly not what I was meant to do in this lifetime. I have another karma of this lifetime. So it was a little bit surprising for me to have those thoughts or fantasies. It became clear to me that it wasn't going to Asia that I wanted to do. Actually, that frightened me a little bit because it seemed like a hard thing to do. And I definitely didn't want to leave my family. And it wasn't anything about shaving my head or taking the robes. It was that I thought that I think they were the symbol for me for being able to renounce the habits of greed and hatred and delusion that were the cause of my suffering, that are the cause of everyone's suffering. I think it was a, a symbolic kind of a dream. And I really have become convinced that we have all of us, regardless of our clothing and regardless of what outside 
signs we give of our dedication to this practice, having taken it on seriously, have decided to renounce those tendencies that lead to confused, intoxicated mind. You know, when I'm on retreat, what I do, some of the extra restraints that I do, I have rules for myself, like I don't look at my watch. Think about when you go on walking practice. How many times do you think to yourself during the course of a walk, I'll just see what time it is. What does it matter what time it is? If there's five minutes to go, or ten minutes to go, or twenty minutes to go, however much, a bell will ring. It doesn't matter. What, what I learned by learning to not look at my watch, not leave it in my room, leave it on my wrist, but not look at it, is that the moment that preceded looking at the watch was a moment of lust or aversion. I wanted something else to happen. And instead of acting on the lust or the aversion, you just don't. And it gets less. That what we really try to do is dehabituate the mind from compulsively going in those directions. I love the instruction that James gave the other night in that whole list of things to do with troubling thoughts. One of the final uh, instructions for if nothing else works in dealing with troublesome thoughts and they keep on coming back and troubling. Do you remember the last instruction? Is just don't go there. Don't go there. And it's such a renounce to have some thought or some mood come across the field of vision that says, like a fish hook, you know, with a bait, says, think me, or do me, or feel me. And it's so seductive. You say, well, I'll just do this one, then I won't do the next one, I promise. But to be, to be able not to do it and say, I'm going to stay right here, is a tremendous renunciation. Every single time that you did that, you erased a moment of conditioning. You did that a million times this week. Every time you did that, you erased a moment of conditioning. The reason, one of the reasons that I like to talk about the paramitas at the end of a retreat is that unbeknownst to you, or maybe beknownst to you, all of these capacities were getting cultivated in the course of this week. You told yourself honestly what was happening. You waited patiently for something to pass. You renounced the need to do something else, and you did this instead. We behaved in a blameless way. We made generous space in our own minds to learn something new. We gave away our opinions. I think we all did a little bit. All the time, every moment of practice, actually, is a moment of cultivation. Every moment of saying, I'll do one more minute, one more minute, one more minute, is a moment of determination. Every time we did a minute, or a few minutes, or a half a day, of something that wasn't pleasant, We were really doing compassion practice for ourselves. We were saying, you can do this, this is not so pleasant, but you can do it, it's okay. It was forgiving the experience for being what it was, which was the compassionate response to yourself. Everybody that I saw, I think, in the course of the week said, I'm having this difficulty, but I'm not on my case about it. That's a moment of great compassion. That's a very wise decision. said it to everybody that I saw. Said, this and this is happening. I'm not comfortable with it. I wish it weren't happening. But I'm not giving myself a hard time about it. That is wonderful. That's a great and compassionate and forgiving act. It's really, if we don't give ourselves hard times, we won't give other people hard times either. As we realize what's happening, it's just what's happening. It couldn't be other. It's already happening. The best we can do is to forgive it, respond wisely to it. Maybe the wise response will change it. That would be great. If the wise response doesn't change it yet, we'll be with it. 
Maybe one more to talk about as you go out into the world is the quality of patience. I think this guy who told a story the other day of um, the man going out of the supermarket line who passed the baby over, and well, who watched the baby get passed over and passed back to its grandmother, and how his whole attitude changed when he saw the wider picture of what was actually true. I think every time that we get angry, and every time that we get irritable, every time that we are in contention with our experience, it's because we haven't seen the wider picture. As a way of talking about this is equanimity, if we understood the whole karma of the situation, we would hold it differently. There's a way also of talking about cultivating the patience that leads to that wisdom or that understanding. So maybe just to tell one piece of um, a Dalai Lama story. Dalai Lama did teachings on patience in uh, Tucson a number of years ago. I remember I told you the story the other night of that was a very conference in which he made an era of translation and laughed about it. And it was a great lesson for me that he could say, I made a mistake. There's a few other very great lessons. One of them had to do with the fact that the whole entire week was the teaching of chapter six of Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Chapter six is 134 verses, I think. And each of them is a reiteration of what you should do in the event that impatience arises. And they're all different permutations and combinations of ways in which you might be offended. If somebody offends you in this way, you should reflect thus. If someone offends you in that way, you should reflect thus. Every possible variation of ways, if someone hits you, if someone takes something that's yours, if someone uh, defames your good name, that's extremely hard for most of us. Not only if someone says bad to us about us, we have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with that. But if one hears, if I hear, as sometimes happens from somebody, did you hear what so-and-so said about you? And you know that somewhere out there, someone said something about you. And you can't do anything about it, because what can you do? You know, run around and tell everybody, listen, what so-and-so said about me, it's not so. <laughs> and then you have this terrible feeling of people out there think this and this about me, and it's not true. Shantideva said, that happens to you, you should reflect thus. Is it true what that person said about me? to however many people. If it is, you should be grateful that someone pointed out something that you could fix and that would be to your benefit to fix. And you should be grateful to them as if they're a teacher for having helped you along on your path. And if it's not true what they said, what's the problem? So. That's what Shanti Deva said. We all think, well, the problem is that everybody is thinking this and this, but not if your heart is calm. What's the problem? Not to make more out of it. I remember that particularly because I think because it spoke to me so much. I would have a lot of trouble with that. The point of the story that I want to tell you, though, is that the Dalai Lama taught all week about every possible way that one might respond when anger arises. Someone asked him at one point, does anger never arise with you? And he said, of course anger arises. Somebody does something. Something is not going the way that you hoped it would. Anger arises. But it's not a problem. It was very clear that, and it was certainly very clear to me, that anger arises as an alert sign. Something's not going the way that I want. And then, clearly and kindly and wisely, you fix it if you can. 
that the continued holding of anger that perpetuates anger in the world is what we really are renouncing. Can't renounce a nervous system, but we can certainly renounce a grudge or a vendetta or a feud or a war. We could renounce those. So this is the part that I really wanted to tell you about. At the end of the week, after five days of teaching, the Dalai Lama read the last verse. And when he finished reading the last verse and interpreting it, he suddenly bent over and seemed to double over in his chair and put his hands over his face and kind of slumped over forward. And I everybody was quite caught by that. I was quite worried. It looked like maybe something had seized him. And I guess perhaps because I have a worried mind and I'll always think about what bad thing this might mean. I thought maybe he's been seized with some dramatic pain somewhere. And after a while, we all held our breath. He sat up and he took out of his robe somewhere, a handkerchief. He wiped his face. He was crying. He was so moved by what he had just taught about the power of patience, overcoming anger in any situation so that the wise response could prevail. And I was so moved by that because I knew that this is not the first time that he's read that text. He's read it and taught it many times. But the power of the compassionate response rather than the angry response so moved him that he cried. It's a tremendously exciting thing to think that we have the power in us by paying attention, by understanding fully the suffering in the world, the suffering in ourselves, the ways in which when we are not clear, we contribute to it. And when we are clear, we end it. That we are willing to wait and try and begin again, and try again and try again. I knew when I began to talk that I probably couldn't tell a story for each of these ten. But I also knew that it wouldn't matter because I could have tossed them into a bowl and pulled out any proximal cause with any of these capacities of mind and made them work. Because the proximal cause, if I read the list, would be seeing that you can give something up. It's listed as generosity, but it's also a renunciate act to give something up. It's also part of honesty because we give up guile. It's also part of energy because we give up sloth. It's also part of loving kindness because we give up grudges. Every one of these proximal causes will fit for every one of these capacities of mind. And in fact, There's a top of this list that says over all these lists, this is the function, these are the, these are the qualities of mind, the capacities of mind. This is what they do for you. They compose the mind. They bring clarity to the mind. They bring steadfastness to the mind. The next list says, how do they function? What do they do in the world? It says it fortifies practice. It cultivates endurance. It sustains clarity. They're all different, but you could change them all around. All of the proximal causes are insight into the Four Noble Truths. Faith in the Four Noble Truths. Seeing things how they really are. Feeling a sense of spiritual urgency. And then there's kind of a summation column that says, these are how they're all the same. 
They all have the characteristic of benefiting others. They all have the function of being helpful to others. They all manifest by wishes of well-being for others. And the proximal cause of all of them is great compassion. So all of you have been here for all of these two weeks, practicing, seeing clearly. We've been making dedication of merit every day. Dedication of merit sounds sometimes like we accumulate up all the merit and hold it in a little pile. And then when we get around to making that dedication, then we suddenly, in that moment, give it out to the world. It's not like that. That's the formal announcement of it. But in fact, every moment that we are clear, every moment that we are trying to be clear, every moment that we are renouncing greed, hatred, and delusion, every moment that we are honest with ourselves, any moment that we summon up energy, Any moment that we make a decision about what will be the least harming, most helpful thing to do, every one of those moments is a moment of clarity and non-confusion in our heart. And it's already for the benefit of all beings. So tomorrow when you go out in the world, the rest of the world, however you are. And really whatever you say is a manifestation of Dharma. Sometimes in class on Wednesdays, um, we have people say, what do you think this means? Some story. And ten different people will say ten things that will all be true statements. their interpretation of it. And we begin to talk about how many ways, like here are ten paramita ways, to talk about what we are doing here together. And then I realized after a while that I didn't have to tell a story to get ten interpretations that we could say, oh, those are interpretations of that particular story. Could just say, say some dharma. And ten different people could say things without the story. So when you go out tomorrow, keep in mind that everything you say is your dharma. And you're teaching it to everybody that you meet. And they're benefiting from it. The end of uh, teaching um, a group of monks and nuns for a long time, the Buddha sent them out to teach all over India. And uh, in a sermon sending them out, he said... uh, Go forth, O monks, and teach the Holy Dharma in the idiom of the people. I take that to mean everyone's personal idiom. Each of us has a different role that we play in the world. We teach and work and live and act in different circumstances. But we are each of us distal descendants of that particular teaching. Because the very teachings that you heard here are ones that we heard from our teachers, who heard it from their teachers, who heard it from their teachers, who heard it from teachers, who heard it all the way back to the Buddha. So I like to think that we could say to you, go forth and teach whatever it is that you know and that you are, principally about kindness and compassion to everyone that you meet. So let's sit for a minute.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.